Hello, everyone, and welcome to Gay Men Going Deeper. This is a podcast series by the Gay Men's Brotherhood, where we talk about personal development, mental health, and sexuality. Today, I'm your host. My name is Michael Diorio, and I'm very excited to invite Jeremy Russo on the podcast to talk about guilt, shame, and religion. Welcome, Jeremy. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Right. So I first want to acknowledge all the brave souls out there who read the title of this podcast and said, yeah, that sounds like fun. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Guilt, shame and religion. So there's obviously a lot here, but um, all kidding aside, this is uh, guilt and shame are are among the most challenging emotions that we deal with. Everyone uh, deals with this at some point. So kudos to you, viewer, listener who who wants to join us today and has the courage to, to join us on this one. Um, this episode is being released actually during Pride Month in June. So uh, for those of you in North America, and it might seem like, why are they doing an episode on guilt and shame during Pride? And I want to acknowledge that, that it may seem like Pride is the absence of guilt or shame, but I, I beg to differ. I think that Pride is something that actually helps us transform guilt and shame to self-acceptance, and that is the reason for celebration. So I think uh, as you listen to this episode and reflect on what Pride might mean to you, uh, consider the fact that they may go hand in hand. All right, so our goal for today is to actually help unpack some of that uh, guilt, shame, and religion and give you guys tools and resources that will help you uh, facilitate your own uh, journey or help others who may be struggling with this as well. In today's episode, we will take a closer look at guilt and shame and highlight the difference between them. We're going to discuss this in the context of religion and religious trauma. Then we'll talk about the unique impact that that has on queer people specifically. And by the end, we'll be giving you guys some tips and resources to help you navigate your way through it. But first, let's get to know our very special guest today. Uh, Jeremy, again, welcome to the show. And uh, before we jump in, let's tell the audience a little bit about you and why you wanted to do this topic in particular. So hi, everyone, viewers and listeners. Um, I'm Jeremy, and I was actually a pastor's kid and recovering Baptist. (laughs) Um, No, so I grew up in a very ritually religious environment. We were at church every Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday evening, involved in every outreach thing we could do, every community thing we could do. We were there. Our family was there. That's the way we were raised. It was my life. It was the center of my life. And I think that's not uncommon for a lot of LGBT people that at some point they grew up in environments, especially if you were raised in the South of, you know, North America, I don't know how it is in Canada, but if you're raised in the South region of the United States, it's an even higher percentage of LGBT people that were raised in religious environments. So once I realized after I came out, I'm like, great, I'm out. This is great. I'm living in my freedom. And then all of a sudden, it comes knocking on the door. Hey, do you remember this? Do you remember this? And all these different components of guilt and shame that would come back to me. And I'm like, oh, I thought this was over. I thought this was gone. And then I realized, oh, there's stuff I need to work through. Like, it's not just I'm out and that's it. I'm free now. Um, I realized that my body was carrying a lot of that trauma. And So it led to some physical illness. It led to mental illness. Um, Thankfully through therapy years later, I'm, it's not gone, but I'm managing it. Um, But I really have a heart specifically for people that have been religiously traumatized and spiritually abused because the work I do is with a community called Emerge. And we're an interfaith open spiritual space where anyone that came from anywhere or has spirituality or faith or not just literally gets together and has conversations around. So where are you at on this? What does it mean to you with your identity, whether you're LGBTQ or a woman that was silenced in your church or whether you're a person of color that was excluded, no matter what your identity was, how is your spirituality and faith being impacted by that or lack thereof? And let's learn from each other and let's talk about it. So that's what really um, I wanna help people do and offer spaces for them is to deconstruct those beliefs and to realize where a lot of the root causes of some of these things are coming from so that we can recognize them, we can be aware of them. And then when we become aware of them, we start an internal dialogue of healing and working towards that acceptance like you're talking about. And it's something I feel like we're constantly working toward. Couldn't agree more. Thank you, Jeremy, for for that work. I think it's very important. Uh, This isn't the first podcast that uh, we've done on this topic. I did one, maybe November 
called uh, Queer and Christian, uh, where I had several uh, queer men who come from various denominations of Christianity come speak about their experience. So um, there is definitely a lot. Uh, I think there are a lot of people out there who would benefit from the work you do. Absolutely. The community you've built there at Emerge. And I think there's a lot of people who are going to benefit from this, whether or not, I mean, depend, like, even if you're not necessarily, if you don't consider yourself religious or spiritual, I think there's a lot here uh, in this podcast that will, that will help. Okay, so I want to start us off today by defining guilt and shame uh, and what exactly we're talking about when we say those two words. Those are two emotions that get used interchangeably, but they're not exactly the same. So for this, I have enlisted the help of Dr. Brene Brown, here is her book, Atlas of the Heart, highly recommend it, um, who has made a career out of researching these and other emotions. So let's start with guilt. Uh, guilt, the focus is on a behavior. So it's, I did something bad. It's an action or behavior that we did or maybe didn't do. So we look at something we've done or didn't do, and we know deep down we could have done better. Uh, we've fallen short of our own expectations in a way. And in fact, guilt can ignite us to make positive changes in the future if we process it and, and learn from it. So let's look at an example. Let's say you are late, missed a train, and you're supposed to be going somewhere important and you missed the train. And perhaps if you're feeling guilty, you'd feel guilty because maybe you uh, had a nap and you didn't set an alarm. And therefore you were distracted, you slept through it, and now you've missed the train. So that self-talk would be, oh, fuck having a nap before my train uh, was such a stupid thing to do. Like not setting alarm was such a stupid thing to do. So again, the focus is on the action. Now let's look at shame. Dun, shame, dun, dun. yeah. <laughs> shame, the focus is on the self. So it's I am bad versus something I did was bad. So this is the feeling and it's a terrible feeling. <laughs> we all have it. We all have this feeling. It's that feeling of being fundamentally flawed at the very core. Uh, it is a belief that we are therefore unworthy of love, belonging, or connection because of our in innate flawedness. Is that a word? I'm not sure. And it does not drive positive change. Shame does not drive positive change. Guilt can drive positive change. So looking at that same example, you missed a train, you slept and you didn't set an alarm. Your self-talk would be instead, I'm so stupid. I'm not reliable. I suck. Like it's very much critical of the self. So in short, guilt is I did something bad and shame is I am bad. And I also want to acknowledge that these two guilt and shame, often come with a very healthy, or maybe not so healthy, side of other uncomfortable emotions, such as humiliation, embarrassment, discomfort, awkwardness, pain, anger, frustration, confusion, disappointment. It is a nasty cocktail of negative emotion. So it's very important, I think, to know the difference between them. So when you're when you're checking in with yourself, which we can talk about a bit later, knowing whether it's guilt or shame, or sometimes both, they both Go and they both go inside. All right. So now that we've got that out of the way, let's talk a little bit about religion and religious trauma. So, Jeremy, I'd love it if you could explain to the audience the role religion plays with guilt and shame. And after that, if you could also help us understand what exactly is religious trauma for those of you, for those people out there who might not be familiar with that term. Yeah, absolutely. So growing up, I was would say I was religious. I would consider myself more spiritual now. And for those that are kind of maybe don't have that kind of faith, religion to me and my definition is like an organized system where there are beliefs that you hold to, there are things that you do, there are rituals you practice. Um, and typically religion often involves some sort of like uh, gathering of some sort every like a weekly or monthly or whatever. Spirituality, sometimes you still have some of those rituals, you still have some of those practices. Um, but spirituality is more about the experience. It's about feeling it in your body and being aware to me. Um, and the role that religion played in my spiritual trauma is the inherent beliefs that were in that religion perpetuated a lot in me, but not only that, but the people of power in that religion by their actions reinforced those beliefs and by their words, further perpetuated additional trauma on top of all of that. So it's almost like with a religion, you get a one-two punch. It's like, here's the belief that says you're awful and you're unworthy. And also here's all these people that are all doing the same thing. Um, and 
you can't separate those two when you've grown up in that environment. You think they're one and the same. I am being treated this way because I'm a bad person, um, because that's what God thinks of me. Um, and I'm getting treated this way by this person because there's something wrong with me. So in your mind, there's a lot in religion that is connected. And until you step out of that religion and kind of deconstruct it, you're like, wait, I can see differences. I can see patterns. I can separate beliefs from people. I can separate some different experiences and say that was not religion. Maybe that was this, or maybe that was this. But at religion at its core, a lot of the beliefs in mainline Christianity for a long time have been very oppressive, um, whether intentionally or unintentionally for people that would just continue perpetuating these beliefs and not questioning, should I question this? Um, maybe there's something wrong here. Maybe something's not sitting right. Um, and a lot of people, when they start venturing outside of Christianity or any religion to go to like mental health therapy or coaching, and they start hearing these common themes of worthiness and acceptance, they're like, hold on, wait a minute. <laughs> I need to reframe my entire life to believe. <laughs> um, I need to reframe my entire perspective. Um, so re religious trauma and spiritual abuse are two different things to me too. So spiritual abuse is the act, are the actions and um, the perpetual cycle that is continuing to happen. So like you said, guilt is the action. Um, spiritual abuse is the action. That is the part that most people will end up leaving the church or religion for is because of those actions. Religious trauma is what results. So religious trauma is the aftermath. Um, it is, there's actually a great definition here that I'm gonna pull up um, from Restoration Counseling um, in Seattle, Washington. Um, religious trauma is our group of symptoms that arise in response to traumatic or stressful religious experiences. And there has been an increased, I would say awareness in the United States among mental health therapists and psychologists that religious trauma is a very specific subset of trauma that has a lot of very deep seated mental implications. Um, you know, trauma is all awful, whether it's physical, emotional, you know, sexual, all of those things. But with religious trauma, it's literally all in your head. Um, and so it's literally you trying to retrain your body to change these belief systems that you've held for years. Um, and I think religious trauma is what keeps people from going back to religion because they're like, that was awful. Um, and even they, though they may feel like me when I left religion altogether, I felt a drawing of something and I'm like, maybe this is just guilt. Maybe this is just me not going somewhere. Maybe this is just this. And this, and for some people, it is just guilt. For me, it was, no, I still feel a connection to something, but I feel like I can't have that because of who I am. Um, I felt a connection to like the divine and the universe around us. And I was still seeing these things. I'm like, I still feel like there's something drawing me, but I don't want to go back because of the guilt and shame. I couldn't separate the two, my beliefs and the actions that happened to me. So to me, that's the difference between religious trauma and spiritual abuse and how they're different. Um, for instance, with my, 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 dad, my dad being a pastor, the experience I remember most vividly was after I had challenged some beliefs in our church about different things, which sound really stupid to a lot of people that aren't in religion, like, oh, what version of the holy text will you read? And, you know, what should women wear? And they can't wear pants because that's cross-dressing and blah, 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 blah. And on and on the list goes. It was, it was just looking back at it, like, that was nuts. Um, but my dad got up the next Sunday after we'd had this whole conversation. I'm like, I don't know if I believe any of this. I, I just, I'm not, I'm having a hard time comprehending what I'm learning and what I'm seeing and what I'm experiencing in my friendships and relationships and that this is really judgmental. I don't know if I can hold these beliefs. And the very next Sunday he got up and he was literally just railing from the pulpit about this is the way we are supposed to live. And if you don't live like this, you are going your way to hell. And you are, and you know, we are, cause we are all so unworthy. It's amazing that God would even come down to die for you. Like that kind of language that when we listen to it as from a mental health perspective, like that's really, really, really damaging. And I was so sheltered, even in that sermon, I didn't realize what gay was until he said from the pulpit, gay and homosexual people, like men with men and women with women. And when he said that, I just remember that was probably one of the biggest moments of shame I think I'd ever felt in my entire life. And um, I was like, oh shit, 
like that's me he's talking about me and like I just zoned out and like that's I think when my first big depression hit and they were like what was wrong with you I was just quiet for the next two weeks I didn't really say much because it hit me what was going on and then I'm like okay I'm not safe I need to figure out how I can get out of here I was living with my parents and that's not an uncommon scenario for a lot of LGBT people either whether your dad was a pastor or not um you know again from UCLA law in the south over like 50% of LGBT people grew up in a religious environment or still consider themselves religious. Um, And that number actually is likely to increase the older you are. And then um, also um, people of color that are LGBT also have a higher percentage of being religious or having grown up in a religious environment as well. So that's 71%, especially if you're in the South, it goes up to 80%. (laughs) So that's, this is not an uncommon scenario at all. It's just I think so many people are triggered by this conversation that it is very difficult to have this conversation with someone unless you've had relationship with them for a period of time because it causes, because it has to come from vulnerability, which is intensely difficult because when we have been vulnerable in situations like we grew up in, it was hurtful Um, and we don't want to repeat those patterns. So we just try to deal with it ourselves and not, and think we're alone and, um, so that's kind of a little bit background story of some of my religious trauma. Definitely not exhaustive. And I'm sure everyone else, <laughs> even the viewers and listeners that are listening have their own stories yeah. that are um, just as heart-wrenching, even worse sometimes. But um, that's some of the background for me of spiritual abuse and religious trauma. Well, thank you for sharing that, Jeremy. Um, I can't even imagine hearing that from any adult, you know, from a pulpit would be very damaging, let alone your own father. Um, can I ask how old you were at, th- at that time? I was 16. 16. Yeah. And I, I would say, I would think most 16 year olds don't really have the emotional or mental understanding support to, to deal with that. So you have to come up with your own, your own self-preservation techniques. And then oftentimes what happens is they might be useful in the moment when you're 16, but when you're in your twenties and thirties, they cease to become useful, but we still use them. And I think, I think that's maybe, am I, am I on the right track to say that that's maybe where the trauma is like, the the effects of that abuse is that is that right yes okay cool so let me tell you a little bit about my situation and i want to ask you kind of what the difference would be like i want to have you tell me what would be the spiritual abuse versus religious trauma so i was different experience than you i was uh born and raised into a catholic italian family went to a catholic school um where i picked up all of the typical beliefs about sex, marriage, men and women, homosexuality that you would about uh, back in, this was the eighties. So for me, I, I mean, I didn't, it wasn't a particularly religious family. We didn't go to church every Sunday, but we did all the things, weddings and we did communion and all the, all the sacraments and la la la. And I learned about sex through that as well. So I remember similar to you, like I didn't even know the word gay at the time. I was like, I don't even know what this means. If someone said that to me, I wouldn't get it. I just knew that I liked boys at the time, because I was young, uh, like in my class. So, or I, I was intrigued at, of, of looking at like, I don't know, mannequins of underwear when I was out shopping with my mom or something like that. Like, like these things that I, I just knew they were wrong. Like no one said to me, it's wrong to do that. But for some reason, I knew they were wrong. So I, I feel like I don't want to, maybe it is the word indoctrinated, but like, I don't remember anyone specifically saying what you're doing is wrong. I just knew inherently that I was wrong. And there's where the shame came in. I didn't realize, well, first of all, none of that's wrong. I didn't realize that A, none of that was wrong. And then B, that that there's a difference between, you know, guilt and shame. I just felt like, oh, oh I'm in trouble. And, and I remember thinking, oh, if God could read my mind, if God knows my thoughts, that's what I was taught. God knows what you're thinking and everything. Then I can't even think about it. So as soon as like my brain wants to be like, ooh, there's my friend so-and-so he's looking cute today. <laughs> I was like, no, 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 take it back, take it back, take it back. Don't, don't think that, don't think that. And that was, it, that put me in a constant state of like mental stress and anguish. Like I can't even think without having this fear literally of God being in, being in there and judging me. And then, oh my gosh, what if, what if my teacher finds out or what if my mom or dad finds out? Like I had no idea. So tell me in that context, what would be, is that even spiritual abuse or, or religious trauma? I would say absolutely. I think a lot of times, um, well, let me start with this. So I found a definition of spiritual abuse, ironically on Christianity today, and I don't 
you know, I don't really read a ton of their stuff, but I do, I did like what they said here with about spiritual abuse. Um, they said spiritual abuse is a form of emotional and psychological abuse. It is characterized by a systemic pattern of coercive and controlling behavior in a religious context. So this can include things like manipulation, enforced accountability, censorship of your decision-making, requirements for secrecy and silence, mm. coercion to conform, control through the use of sacred text or teaching, requirement of obedience to the abuser, the suggestion that the abuser has a divine position, isolation as a means of punishment and superiority and elitism. So that's a mouthful. Yeah. But to go back to what you said, mental control is just as much spiritual abuse as physical abuse is trauma to me. Yeah. Um, it's, it's still sticking to control someone's mind and everything they're thinking in the context and the funnel of religion. To me, that is still spiritual abuse. Um, I don't think we always think of it that way, um, especially if some of us grew up in environments where it wasn't necessarily as direct as yeah. what some of our experiences were. It was kind of indirect. Like we yeah. don't talk about this, but we'll talk about it in church. So I don't have to have the conversation with you. Um, like my parents didn't even talk about sex with any of us at all. I found out everything I found out through Google. <laughs> and so, yeah, um, because they're like, well, if we don't tell them about sex, then they're not going to have any desires. <laughs> yeah, it's like, no. as a teenager with hormones, like, uh, that doesn't work. Yeah, that <laughs> my biological was like, woo, what's going on? So I think I definitely still consider that spiritual abuse. You know what it is to me? It's, it's using fear tactics and manipulation to keep people in line. And that is bullying right at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that people, pastors or anyone out there is consciously saying, oh yeah, I'm going to go there and be a bully to people. I think that oftentimes it comes from a, it comes, it comes from well-meaning place, but I mean, that's what it is, right? Like it's, it's using fear to get someone to behave the way you think they should behave. And it completely uh, doesn't take into consideration their sovereignty, their autonomy, their authenticity, which to me now, I, those are, my, my core values. And I can see why they're my core values because it's very much my, my history. Um, but I want to also acknowledge that there are people out there, and I'm thinking back to the podcast we did about queer and Christian, who do get so much benefit from religion. And you spoke with us a bit at the beginning. Um, there is, there are wonderful things. There's that sense of community. Um, and so it can be even harder to think, oh, if I, if I'm different, if I am wrong, then I will be ostracized from these people that I love. I remember thinking like my parents were going to give me up and like throw me away basically because I was, again, I didn't know the word gay, but because something was wrong with me, I'm like, oh shit, I'm not like good. I'm not a good boy. I wanted to always be a good boy. I had that people pleaser in me since I was a kid. And I remember thinking, oh my God, I'm not a good little boy. I'm a bad boy. And they're going to like, they're going to get so mad. And, and the fear is, is a very powerful motivator. I, do you see that in your community as well? Yes. <laughs> um, I remember, so talking to a mental health counselor here in Tampa, it was actually not too long ago. I think I told you about this conversation, who was a pastor and left the ministry to become a licensed mental health counselor. Because like what you said, he didn't realize the implications of what he was teaching and the systems of power and dominance and abuse that they were perpetuating in people's marriage relationships and their friendships. People would find themselves in these toxic cycles of relationships. They're like, what is wrong? And it goes, it went back to, he's like the beliefs that I was teaching them, that they were unworthy, that they were not, that they didn't have basic human dignity, that they deserve to be treated with respect. Like, and he's like, and I realized as I'm teaching these beliefs about you are inherently a sinner, God is angry with you, you know, um, you're supposed to live up to this certain code. And if you don't, if you step out of line, God's going to do this. And then you deserve whatever gets you comes to you. That's another portion of religious trauma. If you do something bad, you deserve everything bad that comes after that, yes. Um, yes. which is where a lot of the shame comes in, Yeah. Um, which can, which guilt and shame to me can feel like a cycle, like they perpetuate each other. And often the cycle goes down. Um, it's some, there are some emotions that kind of spiral up like happiness and joy. And you can, you know, I think experience more and more of that. But um, I wanted to kind of reference something. I think it was Brene Brown said about connection. Um, 
because you mentioned people find a sense of community in religion. Yeah. You know, and honestly, I've talked to some people that grew up in that religion said it was just easier for someone else to think for me and to tell me what I should do because life is messy. And I don't, I'd have buyer's remorse about every decision I made. So they found comfort in being like, this is exactly how you're supposed to live. Just tell me how I'm supposed to live. I'll come to you. I'll confess. I'll give you my money. And then I feel like I'm at least worthy of something. Mm-hmm. Um, and the irony is guilt and shame are the total opposite of connection, but yet the church is using guilt and shame to bring people to the church in like this weekly cycle of this is why you need to come back because you're an awful person. You need to confess your sins. You need to do these things. So it's, and that's when people get caught in that cycle. That's when there's a lot of like depression, hopelessness, things like that, that sets in because they're like, how do I break this cycle that I'm in? Um, And there's a book I read called um, Zen and the Art of Happiness by Chris Prentice. And he talks about even in science, our bodies, when we feel emotions, will create receptors for that emotion. So if we feel sad, our body is creating more receptors for sadness. And so our body then becomes hyper attuned to that emotion. And after months and months and months and months and months of feeling that emotion, we can insert guilt and shame here after being our bodies being so attuned to that sense of guilt and shame, we can literally take anything from anywhere and interpret it into guilt and shame. Yeah. And our bodies are so highly sensitive to that, that any little thing, we just spiral down to guilt and shame. Um, and so I think that's, unfortunately, some people don't intend that structure to be what it is, but I think there are just as many people that do intend that structure to be what it is and realize what they're doing. Yeah. Um, there are many mega churches down here. I don't know if up in Canada, many mega churches down here where it was people start in leadership of a church started becoming aware of what the pastor was doing, how he was talking to people, firing people, um, you know, literally going to their house and physically assaulting them like awful stories. And th- once they saw that, they're like, this is a system I don't want to be any part of whatsoever. And they knew what they were doing. Um, my dad, I feel like was more on the side of in spiritual abuse, they talk about this, like divine appointment. Like the person is a divine, like authority figure over you. So what, who are you to question that? And I feel like he was that, like, this is my divine appointment to the church. So I have this huge responsibility to keep these people online. And so he felt as a sense of guilt and shame and obligation to God, that this was his ministry. This is what he was supposed to do. So guilt and shame from him was, oh, I did all these awful things in the past. So now I'm going to spend my life in service to God. Mm -hmm. Caused him to step into ministry in a pastor position somewhere and unknowingly continue to perpetuate this. And it it can be a generational thing too, guilt and shame. Um, And, you know, toward the end of his life, he, there were little moments where I could sense that there was a lot of regret for not being aware of what he was doing. Um, which I've heard from a lot of pastors, a lot of this, a reason a lot of them are leaving ministry down here is because they're like, I had no idea I was perpetuating this. I had no idea these beliefs were like damaging so many people and I can't do this anymore. Um, so that's an act of courage on their part. It's very brave it thing is. to do. Yeah. So uh, we've been talking a little bit about the, the impact on queer people already in our own personal stories and we've seen, and I want to, I want to dig deeper on there. Um, Something that you had said really struck me um, about using religion and, and uh, as like, you know, you, you deserve the pain that's coming to you kind of thing. Again, I'm going to speak to my personal experience growing up in the 80s. My first learning understanding of HIV and AIDS was that this is a gay disease and God is effectively, this is what they get. This is what they get for, for doing what they do. And it was it was terrifying for me um, growing up because on some level I knew that I was that again, I don't know consciously if I knew that, but on some level I knew that that was me. And then therefore now <coughs> adding on to all the, all of the sort of stress and anxiety I had about being me on top of that, I was like, Oh my gosh, if I act on this, I'm going to die. God will kill me through this disease. 
of course, now I know that that's not true at all. But for a kid, I mean, what was I? I was like 10 years old. Like, I didn't, I don't know. Um, it, it's, it, but that message is very damaging and, and completely untrue. And so I think that, that again, it speaks to the manipulation and fear that, that, that uh, religions sometimes use. I don't want to, you know, paint a broad brush. Some religions sometimes use it. Uh, and unfortunately for me, that was the case. So it took a lot of work to unlearn all these things. It took a lot of personal work to have courage and, and coming out and all of it. <laughs> accepting my homosexuality within myself. So let's then talk about that, the impact of this on queer people specifically, um, right? Because guilt and shame in religion, it impacts straight people, women, old, young, everything, right? But for queer people specifically, um, I know you're in this interfaith community. I'm curious to know what impacts you see most often that are that are fairly universal amongst most religions. Ooh. Um... Yeah. I would say probably the number, which is not going to be a shocker to anybody. The number one thing I've seen in probably every queer person I've met is this lingering sense of unworthiness. Mm, yeah. This like residual, like I can't kick this feeling. Um, and there's a whole other conversation about like mental health access to marginalized communities. There's a whole other, that's a whole other conversation. Um, and it, it, the sense of unworthiness runs like so very deep. Um, some of these people I've known for years, three, four years, five years. And to this day, it's still a, like a constant battle that they struggle with on a very deep level. Um, to where I'll even give them a compliment or say something to them and you just see them cringe. And it just like, my heart was like, oh. um, and me as the person that wants to help everybody heal, I'm like, how, how do I do this? How do I fix this? And I'm like, you can't, like, this is their journey. You can support them. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so unworthiness, um, trauma is in virtually every person I talk to. There are some people that grew up in environments that I've personally known that had very supportive environments in their family life. But then at school or in other situations, they still dealt with that whole, you know, name bashing, queer bashing type of environment. So there's trauma from that. Um, and I think the trauma perpetuates the unworthiness too. And I think the trauma also makes them feel very disempowered. I have no control over what happens to me, yes. which is a core theological belief yes. in a lot of religions. You have no, you know, my, my dad said we had free will, but then it was always funny because he's like, oh, well, God's doing this for a reason. God's doing this like, well, don't we have any sort of say in anything? <laughs> like, are we just like these helpless little, oh, I don't know, <laughs> like, are we just these people that things happen to and we just don't have any sort of power or control over our life to be able to manage it, to manage our emotions, like emotional intelligence, like do right. we have no capacity to do any of this? Um, and whenever I would say that, he's like, well, that's a very humanist perspective. <laughs> I'm like, that's what mental health and psychologists say we are. Like, so, <laughs> um, so unworthiness, um, a common thread of trauma healing yeah. and often that trauma can perpetuate other trauma either in their relationships or in their family relationships or taking it on other people which then causes trauma for other people um and just very like disempowered they question all their decisions every single day they never know if they're making the right decision because they were taught they're not capable of making a yeah. right decision and literally every emotion like that like you can trace back to a belief that they grew up with. And that's when I was talking to um, Thomas Hanna, who was with Tempest Counseling here in Tampa, Florida. Shout out to Thomas. Um, and I had this whole conversation with him about like beliefs that he taught and then the outcome in people's mental health. And I taught this belief and here is the outcome. I thought this yes. belief is the outcome. Like you can draw a line, like a straight line to all these things, which is that people are like, oh, well, it's not the religion. It's um, you know, the people you grew up with. I'm like, 
I would I would say it's often both. Um, because when you are taught to form your belief around this and not question it, your actions always come from your beliefs. So if you believe you're unworthy, your actions are going to come from that. If you believe you're an awful and terrible sinner that just can never do anything right, you're going to feel like you can't do anything right. Like it starts with your belief system. And so um, if you have this set of beliefs in religion, your actions are going to come out of that. So I would say it is often people in the relationships you grew up with, but it also is the religious beliefs that we held. It was the religious beliefs we were taught that perpetuate a lot of this guilt and shame for us. hundred percent. That's, that's, you're speaking my language that resonates fully for me. And, and like, how can you, if you believe you're fundamentally flawed and not good, how do you trust yourself? How do you trust your decisions? How do you trust anything? And then again, it goes back to, okay, well, I need other people to tell me what to do, or I don't know what I'm doing. It's disempowering. You know, that, that definitely was my experience. I also want to say my, my, what actually happened, my family didn't, was, was mostly okay with me coming out when I did come out, but the damage was already done in terms of the, the beliefs I picked up. I would have loved it you know, and I encourage all parents now listening to this, or even doesn't have to be a parent, any adult that has a child in their life, um, to remind people that you could have conversations about sex, sexuality, all these things, and should have these, because it might be like my case, my parents, they weren't even that religious, they didn't care, they didn't think that homosexuality was a sin, they didn't believe that at all. But I picked that up at school, because, you know, they kind of uh, gave the, the task of learning sex health and sex ed to my teachers, who then put that kind of those beliefs in me and a lot of other people in, in that Catholic school system. So I think there's something to be said about that too. Like parents can have their own views and share them with their children or nieces or nephews or whoever, whoever that might be, that would have deeply helped me. And that would have probably let me come out a lot sooner. And I was very lucky. I know that that's not always the case. I, I admit that I'm lucky that my parents were for the most part, very accepting. And Juan, I think, you know, to speak to you a little bit, just personally, I think, I've talked to people that like one of my best friends, um, Mike, he's like, I feel just awful when you tell me your story. Like, I feel bad that I didn't go through worse. Mm. I'm like, no, I'm like, that's survivor's guilt. That's still guilt. Mm, <laughs> yeah. I didn't have it as bad as you did. So, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Like, no, we all, all have stuff that we work through. So I just wanted to speak that to you. Um, yeah, thank you, know, you. You still have your spiritual abuse that you deal with and it's may look different than mine. There may be similarities to mine, but everyone has, as queer people tied to religion, what makes it harder is the beliefs are tied to our like core identity, like that we hold. So we're all humans, that whole argument, oh, our humans, we just need to love each other. Yes, but we're all, we all have our own identity as well. And when someone continually perpetuates a belief that says you as your fundamental core self will never be loved. You as your fundamental core self and who you are needs to be changed. Like, I, I don't I don't even still know how to respond to that sometimes. I'm like, I just, you've just gotta be open to a conversation. If you're not, I don't know if I can have that conversation with you because <laughs> um, I went through conversion therapy um, all of a month and then I left. Um, because I realized in my core being, I realized this is not going to work. Mm -hmm. And well, you believe it's not going to work. That's why it's not going to work. No, I, I know in my intuition, this is not going to work. This is making this worse. This is sending me into depression. Um, this is making me have suicidal thoughts. I cannot go down this path. I, this is not something I can change. Um, and so when you hear people be like, oh, I believe it's a sin, but I'll still love you. I'm like, but you're still going to be acting out of that belief that you believe were inherently sinful. Like whether you realize it or not, you're still going to come from that place that says you're still a sinner, you know, and which is why there's been so much conversation in mainline denominations about this. This is a fundamental belief we have held for thousands of years that is wrong. Yeah. And why you see denominations starting to split because they're like, well, let's accept them. There's nothing wrong with them. Hold on. You know, this is not the way we've always done it. You know, um, that was pretty heavy. Um, but yeah, 
Thank you for, for sharing that. Um, yeah. How old were you, if you don't mind me asking? I was in college, so I was 22. Okay. And, and when you left, were you able to leave on your own accord? I was. I actually, okay. yeah, I just... <laughs> Good for you. Walked out the door. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah. I'm like, I, I'm not coming back. <laughs> yeah. Is that uh, here in Canada, we've recently, only recently made it illegal. Um, is that something that's still legal, a uh, legal practice there? It is in certain states. Okay. And even in states where it is illegal, there, it's become a very hush-hush thing. Like you yeah. have to get a referral for it. You have to know someone that will know someone to know someone. There's levels of filtering you have to go through. Cause there was one that we became aware of as pride and we call them and we tried to be like, Oh, you know, we have this kid, we have, you know, this going on. We need to know where we can send. They wouldn't give us any information because they're like, Oh, well, no, you have to go through an intake program. You have to go through a referral program. Like there's very secretive. So there are still areas that I would say venture to say in the South in America that still do that. Um, and in states where it's becoming illegal, there's there's still that undercurrent of trying to mask it under something else. Um, major oh. churches like Bethel um, actually have a conversion therapy program. Um, they just say, we just won't force anyone in there. You can go in there if you want to. And I had the biggest problem with that. And I told someone, I said, see, that's still wrong. I said, here's my problem with that. You're still telling them that they can fundamentally change who they are which is not true. It's just not true. I said, so I'm like, I still have a problem with that. Even if you're not going to force someone in there, even having it there is a problem because there's still this lingering, oh, well, if I want to try to change, if I want to try to be normal, I can go to this program. When I came out of the program and I left the church, actually, I left the church, didn't even talk to anybody. I just completely left. They sent me a letter. um, And it's like, we want you to come back to the church for church discipline. And so we can vote you out. (laughs) <laughs> yeah and so i called the pastor and said no fuck yeah. no <laughs> amen so not subjecting myself to that humiliation i said because <laughs> i've come to peace with who i am and i believe god loves me exactly as i yes. am and the letter said we vote you out of the church not just that church like the church and i got the biggest kick out of that because i'm like really that's just terrible theology because you can't really vote someone out of a church. Like the church is universal. Like <laughs> you can't just, oh, you're not a part of any of these religions and spiritual communities anymore. It's like, eh, no, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. Well, so be it. Oh, so yeah. So let it be. And just. I think a red flag is secrecy. We talked, you mentioned this a few times. We know that shame thrives in secrecy and in darkness and a lot of churches uh, do this. It's it's all secret, right? Like even with confessing your sins in the Catholic Church, it's done. We you know you can't see the priest and they can't see you, and and that should be a big red flag for anyone. As soon as something is needs to be hidden or is shrouded in secrecy, red flag shame is there. There's something like they're using shame as a manipulation tool, uh, and all these things. So I think it's. I mean, I, I, again, I credit Brene Brown and the work that she's done because I think that as, and it's not just her, but as we are becoming more aware of how these things work, we are able to, yeah, like like you mentioned, some pastors are able to say, hey, wait a minute, start, start poking holes in these beliefs we've had for so many years. And just because we've had them for so many, so many years does not mean they're true or correct. And to add to so what you said about secrecy, that level of vulnerability especially for people that have been traumatized and abused in whatever way but in this specific instance because of their identity or because of their religion or their spirituality they feel like they still have to keep those things a secret even when they find someone that they could share those things with mm-hmm. because there's that potential or that thing in the back of their head oh they could go mm-hmm. tell somebody else they could go tell somebody else um like when I came out to one of my best friends at college, he went immediately and told the pastor, that's how I got into conversion therapy. Cause I said, don't tell anybody. I just feel like I need to pull this weight off my chest. Like, I'm like, I'm gay. And I don't know what that means. I don't know. I'm like, could you, can you just please not tell anybody? Cause I'm not ready to be outed. And the story goes. <laughs> so that created a pathway in my brain that says, you can't share anything mm-hmm. private with anybody because they're going to betray you. Mm-hmm. So especially in at Emerge, you're working with people in any spiritual space that it takes a lot of intentional relationship and trust building to even get to the point where we might even be able to consider having vulnerable conversations because 
those pathways have to be rewired and they have to learn, they have to relearn how on their own to discern healthy relationships, trustworthy people. And they're trying to learn that while questioning their decisions. <laughs> and there's so much that goes into that. That's like a first recommendation, go to a mental health therapist, please. Like <laughs> We will get you connected with people who will, but it's, it's just unfortunate that it, it's taken me this long to even share some things like with my husband and he'll be like, wow. I'm like, yeah, I, I just had in the back of my mind that you would just walk away or that this yeah. would just end everything. Or that if I said I made a mistake or if I said I did this, or if I said I thought this, that that would just be it. And you'd be like, okay, can't deal with you anymore. You're too messy. Um, and even my best friends. And he's like, you know, like, I'm like, and I know in my heart that's true, but my mind was perpetuating these lies still about what would happen. Um, and none of them happen. So <laughs> that's good. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> so Jeremy, you, you were saying earlier about the, 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 the book that you read and how, um, these emotions create these receptors. And as you feel the emotion more it creates more receptors, this makes so much sense to me. You just unlock something within me because for most of my life, I was in a constant state of fear and it still comes up for me today. I'm not I'm not saying I'm fearless now, but like that makes so much sense because on top of all the fear I had, of it, like I said, I couldn't even, I wasn't even allowing myself to think about things. Um, I, you know, fear of rejection, fear of, of abandonment from my parents, fear of just being who I was, fear of thinking, fear of getting a boner, uh, fear of <laughs> masturbation, fear of being ostracized, fear of loneliness, fear yes. of not living a good life, fear of dying. If I did something with a guy, like all of these things created, I think for me, this, this, man like I grew up to be a man who was just afraid and did I show that no but did I did I find ways to kind of make my 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 mask so that I didn't appear to be afraid and maybe I was uh compensating it in other ways yes absolutely that's that I guess is a, an effect of the trauma perhaps but I think it's really interesting to see in my own life how that makes so much sense of why fear has played such a huge role and still does fear still does play a role in everything I do, fear of these days, it's more like fear of here showing up on this podcast and talking about this stuff, knowing that there's thousands of people listening and fear still shows up for me, but it's, it's, it makes sense why it's there. So I just wanted to thank you for kind of shedding that light for me. Absolutely. And the, one of the huge things that with you, since you just mentioned it, of how this has a huge impact on queer people is sexuality haven't even talked yes. about, we just talked about orientation. We haven't even covered sexuality. Oh, yeah, we can totally. cover a different podcast. <laughs> That's a whole other thing. Yeah. You don't talk about sex. Even if you're straight, you don't talk yeah. about sex. You don't talk about what you need, what your yeah. sexual needs are. You, you just don't talk about that. There are even from the pulpit, certain sexual acts that were forbidden, like oral sex was like sodom, like sodomy. It was really like this really fucked up, messed up. I'm like, are we really going to just say like, all this is, I'm, I'm like, oh, this is so terrible. <laughs> yeah. But then there's that whole feeling of queer people. Well, I'm just going to be a sinner anyway. So I may as well just go do whatever I want sexually, which is like, eh, that, which is what I did. Um, that's the same. I had same. no framework for STDs. I didn't know what HIV and AIDS was. I just went out and had unprotected sex for years. And I was just like, I, what's a condom? I didn't know any of that. No one taught me that. I just, because we didn't talk about any of that in the church. I didn't know about, and so when I look back on that day, I'm like, it is a miracle. Like, I, that's what, I'm like, I believe in the higher power because like by all sort of unsafe things I would have stepped into, it's it's a miracle, you know, yeah. that like just the universe was like looking out for me. Um, but even, even among the, like the queer community now, it's like, talking about it even like with your friends and you're not sexual with so talking about things like that it's just like uh, 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 uh. there's like this reaction like oh we don't talk about that i'm like but we need to like Absolutely. we need to share these things so that if something happens you you have someone trusted that you can share this with like with secrecy it thrives in secrecy guilt yeah. and shame um you know there's that whole other level of people in the kink community and queer people that like there's this whole shame around oh you're just so perverted you're so awful i can't believe you're into that you're acting the same way as what the church did to you. Like you're yeah, perpetuating the perpetuate same thing. It. Like Absolutely. You're, you're doing the same thing. <laughs> um, but sexuality is a, oh Lord. I remember for even the first year, I think I would just go have tons of hookups. And every time, I, I mean, I was doing it intentionally to try to desensitize myself 
from feeling like it was a bad thing to do. Like I was do, trying to do it so much. I'm like, eventually I'm going to have sex with someone and I'm not going to feel guilty. I'm not going to feel shameful and I'm not there yet. So I'm going to keep doing it. And it was an unhealthy mindset because I'd get back in my car and then go back to college. And of course I'm having panic attacks. Like, I can't believe I did this. And then I'd go like, try to play some hymns and read some scripture just to be like, oh my God, get this out of my mind. I can't believe I did this. And then I'd be sitting there bawling in the dorm room. I'm like, oh my God. Um, because it was the guilt and the shame was the shame was so overwhelming every time I did it, every time I did it. Um, so sexuality, the impact on sexuality, thank God for sex therapists. Yes. (laughs) You know, thank the divine for sex therapists, um, that destigmatize this, but that's another huge, um, impact it has on queer people and religion and not talking about sex, not talking about the dirty things or pleasure or your needs. And there's still so much to be done. There's still mm-hmm. so, so much to be done, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it was my, my earliest memories were, again, uh, masturbation. I did, I mean, like most teenage boys, a lot. And I tried so hard to not think about <laughs> uh, guys or, or whatever. But of course, that's what caught me off. And every time I did, I felt so guilty. Like you take away this beautiful experience of an of a, of a orgasm and like completely, for me, that was met with guilt and shame. So orgasm to me equated guilt and shame. And what effect is that going to have on my sex life growing up? A lot, right? So every time I did it, I was like, okay, I promise I'm not going to do it again. I promise I'm not going to do it. I promise that's the last time until like two hours later when I was doing it again. And so, yeah, I mean, it's it's a very solid point. Again, I had to unlearn all of that, thankfully, and, and I did. Um, but yeah, it, it has far-reaching. We could, have, we could make a whole series of podcasts about the impact it has on queer people. And like, even like for masturbation, I, I was doing it. And I didn't even know what it was called. That's how I know that like, and I tell, tell people now, I'm like, you think that not educating your children on sex is actually going to help them. I'm like, it's not. I was the most sheltered, didn't have internet access boy. And I figured out how it works. <laughs> I'm like, and in nature. that environment, yeah. it, it's who I am as a human being. And, um, you know, yeah, even to this day, like, I'll, I'll, I'll admit, we all do it. Let's just admit, we all do it. Um, and I'll do it. And I'm like, oh, oh, like there's this whole like, oh, wait, hold on. Nope. That's yeah. not bad. That's not yeah. bad. Yeah. That was pleasurable. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's still a thing. And I think we need to talk about that. Absolutely. Um, and the impact that maybe some religious beliefs had on that um, and how we can start supporting each other in, I mean, pleasure is a good thing yes <laughs> in absolutely. any context whether it's sexually like whether you like going and doing something doing this you know going outside getting outside being inside meditating like pleasure is a good thing mm-hmm. and we were so deprived of it that we feel guilty guilty yeah. and shame around taking time to ourselves to feel pleasure of any sort yeah because we don't deserve it right that's the subconscious exactly. thing we don't deserve this it's not for us it's for people who are good people who are you know who deserve that or who are worthy of that but that's not true at all exactly okay jeremy so i want to leave the audience with some tips um resources even for anyone out there who may be listening and resonates with anything we're saying or knows someone who might it's very important right there might be listeners and viewers out there who say hmm this might be helpful for someone else out there even if it's not for you so uh i'll let you speak first what uh what are some tips what are some resources that people out there could use First tip I would say, and I'm going to steal this from my universalist spiritual mother, be gentle with yourself. Yeah. Um, we were raised believing that we had to have all of our shit together all the time. It's just not true. <laughs> it's just not true. It's not realistic. Um, give yourself space to even by yourself, if you're in a relationship, I'm a huge advocate for this. Even if you're in a relationship, give yourself time with yourself to do something you enjoy, whether that's journaling, whether it's watching TV, if this calms you down or doing yoga or meditating, these spaces can be scary when you fear your mind, Hmm. because you're like, I don't want to be still because when I'm still all this comes to the forefront. Um, and I get that. But what I'm finding is it gets a lot easier. Once you take the intentional step to take time with yourself, to be gentle with yourself, to give yourself some sort of space, I think you'll find 
increase awareness. And in that awareness, you'll see some healing and you'll have some, aha, that's where that comes from. Um, that's why I feel that. Second of all, if you can at all get connected with mental health counselors mm-hmm. and don't be afraid to go to a trauma counselor, Jeremy. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause when I did intake for my first therapist, my, uh, the lady was like, I think we need to place you with a trauma counselor. I'm like trauma me. Like that's for people that like over there, like that's for PTSD. That's for anxiety. That's for depression. Little did I know I had all three. <laughs> um, and like when I first went to the first therapy session, he literally just like stopped after I just was sharing my life story and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, what? He's like, okay, we're just going to sit like for five minutes, like right here. And that's when my emotions caught up with what I had said, which is where taking time for yourself comes in. Because often our mind is getting so, it spirals so much that we often don't let ourselves sit to let our emotions catch up with us, which for me is a big trigger for my anxiety. If I don't take time to feel my emotions, my anxiety is like, something's wrong. Something's wrong. You haven't taken time to process something. Um, So don't be afraid, even if you think you've been through this situation to talk maybe to a trauma therapist, because there are different things that trauma will deeply affect in your body and in your mind. And I think once you go there, you'll realize like I did, that it was one of the best things that helped me start to heal and lean into that pain and that discomfort and turn it into self-awareness and healing. Yes. I couldn't agree more. I echo all of that, underline it, highlight it, bold it, say it again. It's, it's fantastic. I couldn't agree more. We talk a lot on this podcast about feeling your feelings. There is so much more harm in numbing and ignoring them than there is in simply just feeling them. And that's the irony of it all. Like if we find a way to process it and yes, finding a therapist or coach or, or someone out there, there's so many mental health professionals who can help because we're not taught that. Like, so I wasn't taught how to process emotions, but that is the only solution that that let, lends itself to a positive outcome, right? Numbing doesn't help, makes it worse, could lead to addiction even. Uh, ignoring doesn't make them go away, you just ignore it and they end up, you end up acting out of these emotions. So uh, yeah, I, w- I just want to underline that one again. So I wanted to answer this in three parts. So we, we talked about guilt, shame, and then religious trauma. So as a coach, I deal a lot with <laughs> guilt and shame. And in some aspects, I've, I've had some clients who have had religious trauma and spiritual abuse. Uh, and thank you, Jeremy, for giving me those terms now. So with shame, it's going back to what we said earlier. Shame thrives in the darkness. And as you keep it hidden away, it will only grow. So for anyone out there who does experience feelings of shame, again, which is this feeling of deep inadequacy and worthiness or feeling flawed at the core, um, reach out and find someone out there who you trust, who has just, who has earned the right to hear this and share it. Uh, this could be in a community. And it doesn't mean that you go out there on the first day and like give your entire story, but finding connection uh, in community would help. And I mean, Jeremy, I would imagine you would be a perfect place for this. Uh, you can you can tell us a little bit more about that at the end. Um, but yes, finding finding a place or people where you can share a little bit of your story uh, for shame. Um, and then when it comes to guilt, for that it's all about apologizing where necessary, asking for forgiveness, making amends, uh, acknowledging what you've done. Again, not hiding or pushing it away or justifying it. Forgiving yourself in many aspects, right? Forgiving yourself for 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 that act. Um, echoing what Jeremy said about practicing self compassion, being kind, being gentle, taking the lesson from it. So if you remember guilt, there could be it is the means you can t- turn that into a positive behavioral change. It can drive meaningful behavior change in the, in the future if you allow it to. Um, and then when it comes to religious trauma, I mean, this is, this is, I'll say, I'll speak from my, from my personal experience on this one. I would say it took me a very long time, similar to you, Jeremy, I kind of threw, threw Catholicism and any religion just out, just completely shunned it, banned it, didn't want to talk about it. There was no God. I was completely just like, this doesn't exist. None of it. However, as life would have it, I found my way back to spirituality in a very different way. And I didn't know that it was that these two things were similar, but they are actually similar, but very different. 
So I would say for anyone out there who has had that, that religious trauma, there may be, and I would argue there is, a lot of benefit in developing your own spiritual practice when you're ready, right? For me, it took years, but eventually I, I just kind of found my way there. Religion is clearly defined. It is very dogmatic. It has specific rituals and practices, and it answers those questions for you. There's no room for exploration or curiosity. That does not work for me. So <coughs> I would say spirituality is different in that it's still that connection to a higher power, that, 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 that connection to more than is you, which I think is something that we all deeply yearn for, whether we believe in it or not, but it's more fluid and it's something you create on your own terms, on your own time. You know, some people borrow aspects. I absolutely have borrowed aspects of Catholicism or Judaism or Buddhism that work for me. Like I, there was a time I didn't even like the word God. It just, it would just make me cringe. Now I use it all the time. I, I speak to God. I pray. I could call it prayer but I don't, it's not the same prayer that I would have done maybe when I was a kid. It's like, I speak to God in my own way, in my own language. I cuss, I say, what the fuck are you doing up there? You know, like whatever that is, but I, I define my own relationship with it. And I think that you don't necessarily need to throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to religion. I think there is, there is something there and it could be very hard to see it when you're maybe going through it. So that would be my, my advice. Jeremy, anything else? So anyone that's out there that just heard what he said, um, <clears throat> I would say for me, when I left Christianity the first time, um, it was because I saw a dichotomy. I saw, I think that's the right word, where I'm like, I can either be gay or I can be Christian. And I know I can't change yes. being gay, so I'm not going to be Christian. <laughs> Throw it out. Yeah. Um, Same. I found myself more back to like a universalist a little bit of everything from everything um and something i'll encourage you if you grow up in a religion or in a spiritual environment i have learned that any good religion any good spiritual practice will have the common things that are good for us as humanity that things that mental health psychologists and spiritual trauma experts agree loving yourself loving others drawing boundaries taking care of yourself any good religion or spiritual practice will cause those things to in your life anything that you're in that you're finding is not doing that take a step back and ask okay what may be about this is not putting to use the old good baptist word the fruit um, that i'm wanting to see and when you're looking for that spiritual practice it's it's whatever resonates with you um yeah i tend to use the divine a lot um because to me the divine is like not only God, but it's like all of everybody, the connectedness of everybody, it's the earth, it's everything. Yes. It's all of that is sacred. Um, so if you want to come, um, Emerge has a couple of things going on. Um, we have a spiritual trauma series that is coming out at the end of this year that is going to be interviewing people like us that have gone through these situations, sharing more of our story, sharing how we have deconstructed from some of these things, maybe reconstructed some of these things. Um, <clears throat> we'll have some ex-pastors on there. We'll have an ex-pastor who became a licensed mental health counselor. Um, we will have people who have completely left all faith and spirituality. We will have people who are still in faith and spirituality. We'll have people that are in between. And all of those are valid options. I just wanna give you permission to feel that. Yeah. Um, from someone who considers themselves spiritual. All of those things are valid options. So we just want you to hear everyone's stories and maybe in something that you see, you'll resonate with something. Like, okay, that, I feel like that is where I need, I want to go or that's resonating with my spirit. Um, so yeah, that's what I recommend. There are now spiritual communities that are open-minded that you don't have to believe a certain thing to be there. And I would really encourage you to go to one of those. If you feel that, longing or that desire um we have buddhists agnostics atheists you know people that are wiccan which like everything we have everything here and we all share our spiritual journeys and i know i've become a much better person by listening yeah. to everyone else even if i don't practice that myself i'll hear something i'm like oh that shifts my perspective on this belief that i have or even if i have the same belief it provides me a different angle on it um and that kind of openness and awareness to different things is from a trauma survivor perspective is really scary sometimes. 
<laughs> it's not always the most comfortable, fluffy thing you're going to feel. Um, but with mental health help, with a good supportive community, good supportive friends, you can thrive and you can yeah. find the lane that you're going to resonate with and that you're going to connect with the divine or God or the universe or whatever you find to heal. And really, if we all do that and start breaking this cycle of trauma, there is so much hope for the mm-hmm. next generations to come. If we start breaking this and becoming aware of this and saying, okay, this, this is going to stop first with me. I'm going to, this is going to stop with my life. And then it will affect the people around you. <clears throat> Even as I've come out and went to mental health therapy, a lot of people that, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't know why, that I went to college with, they're like, I was watching you the entire time. And I didn't, I was waiting to see how this would work out <laughs> because they're like, we were always told that something terrible would happen to you. You know, mm. God will strike judgment down. Like yeah. We're watching you do all these things. And we're like, well, he looks like he's fine. <laughs> Looking outside of the cage of like religion and being like, well, they look great. They look free. You know, <laughs> um, <laughs> And I make a joke about it, but I really cry when I read those messages because it's, it's confirmation over and over again. When you embrace yourself, when you embrace your healing process, when you find people to be vulnerable with, people are watching and you will affect, that energy will affect the people around you. It will affect you. It will change you. So lean into it. Thank you, Jeremy, so much for your work in this space. I think it's incredibly important. Um, So where can people find you? Me personally, um, (laughs) Jeremy Russo on Facebook. uh, It's at Mystic Spiritualist on Instagram. Um, if you want to kind of get connected with Emerge and kind of the spiritual trauma video series we're doing, um, that is Emerge NWC on Facebook. It is at Emerge Community is the username for that. And on Instagram, it is at Emerge NWC. So we've actually posted some of uh, Michael's Willismo coaching. Too. <laughs> so there's Thank some you. posting going on there. Yeah, I love um, it. Thank you. Because if you need a space or someone to talk to, you're like, okay, just no judgment. I need to vent or no judgment. I need to think through some things. Reach out to us. And even if you're not in our vicinity, if you want to find an in-person spot somewhere, we know people across the nation. There are obviously people up in Canada yes. that are going along the same line. So we can connect you with people who will help you find maybe at least resources to let you make the decision on what you want to do with that information, but reach out for resources anytime. Absolutely. And and everything they said, we're going to put that in the show notes of the podcast. So whether you're watching on YouTube or listening to us on the podcast, I'll have all these links and all these handles there. So don't worry. Um, yes, please feel free to reach out to Jeremy or myself to, you know, talk about anything um, we can point you in the right direction. Even if we aren't necessarily able to help you, we can definitely give you some resources. So don't be shy. Okay. So I wanted to thank you again, Jeremy, for joining us and sharing your experience, you know, uh, I think this has been a a very useful and helpful episode for a lot of people out there. Viewer listener, if you are tuning in still and you joined us for for this lovely conversation and like what you heard, please give us five stars and leave us a review. Um, You can also subscribe on YouTube if you haven't already and click on the little bell so you get notified each time we release a new episode, which are every Thursday. Uh, Check out the show notes as well if you want to become a patron of the show. And if you're not already in our private Gay Men's Brotherhood Facebook community, please join us there. We have over 5,000 people there. And also, uh, if you want to take your personal development to the next level, please join the Gay Men Going Deeper membership. You'll have access to coaching videos from myself, Matt, and Callan. We have two courses, Building Better Relationships and Healing Your Shame. Perfect for this. And we do monthly coaching calls, as well as having an awesome community of men who uh, really want to take their personal development to the next level. So thank you again, Jeremy, for joining us. And we'll see you all next time.